Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, reminded that this indeed is the Christmas season and we have many, many ways of remembering the Christmas season and there's the, the celebrations with all the food and, you know, food's always a good thing. Never really met a meal I didn't like, but, <laughs> uh, even the mice in uh, Kenya. But uh, f- food is always a good thing, and and we have those traditions of food, and we have the music, and and thank you Jay and the band for the music, uh, and Sister Joni uh, to, to remind us and take us back, and get us geared up for the Christmas season. Um, we want to look at the Christmas season or a Christmas message from a little different angle this morning. Uh, we want to see what Christ, what Jesus thought of Christmas. How did he view his coming at Christmas? Um, and it's so easy to forget that and lose it in the coming of the little baby that's so easy to tickle under the chin and then just kind of dismiss Okay, so we want to look at what Jesus thought of Christmas. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, reads as follows. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body. Now, in the text, you can't see it in an English translation, but in the Greek text, the original language of the New Testament, that is a word of major emphasis. A body. You see, he just couldn't have removed the disqualification between us and God without a body. A body hast thou prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will. Oh, God. And you notice there as we read that what Jesus called the Father, calls him God. There's something awfully big here. As far as we know, in all eternity past, he only called him Father. And as far as we know, in all eternity future, he'll only call him Father. But while he was here for 33 years, Living as a faith-dependent man, just like you and I, here he calls him God, his God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know how Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 work. No chapters in the Bible present a bigger Jesus than Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, particularly when the profile is on atonement and the sacrifice, which we just celebrated this morning, the remembrance thereof. And what we see here is a statement that is just staggering. This is a statement of Jesus Christ that is just totally staggering. It takes us all the way outside of time, all the way outside of history, and all the way inside of God. May I say that again? I just love to hear myself say that again. It it takes us all the way outside of time, all the way outside of history, and all the way inside of God. What we have here is a picture of an incredible summit conference prehistorically conducted between two members of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, as it were, sat at the end of the conference table with a pad for notes in his hand and records what was said. Who called the meeting? What it was about? The necessity that they were discussing was still yet to come. Was still yet to come. Jesus was on his way to Bethlehem here. So it's an incredible summit conference between the Father and the Son. And you know, this is so important. It's recorded back in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, as well as here in our text. And these are the minutes of that summit conference prehistorically conducted between father and son, I say again, this is awfully, awfully big stuff. Now, let's approach it from another direction. How many babies do you know were talking on the way to their own birth? Is that big enough? How many babies do you know that were talking intelligently with God's wisdom on the way to their own birth? Well, you never met a baby that said anything before it was born. Words are conditioned in the babies. But here you have the Lord Jesus talking on the way to his own birth. This text reveals what Jesus thought about his coming at Christmas. When we usually consider Christmas, we usually consider it from the viewpoint or the perspective of Joseph, Mary, Anna, Uh, Simeon, the wise men, who were not there at the birth, by the way. They came two years later. Well, I just blew your nativity scene all to pieces, didn't I? (laughs) Read it. I didn't didn't make it up. It's in the book. (laughs) They weren't there. (laughs) Nor were they kings. They were king makers. They were king makers. They came to recognize the one who was born king. Now, that ought to set you Bible students on a search. (laughs) But we normally consider uh, the presentation of Christ in a sentimental way. You know, the cute little baby in the manger and all those things. But here we learn what Jesus thought of Christmas, what he thought of his own coming. And I want to give you four ideas describing what Jesus thought of Christmas. Number one, he saw his coming as an embodiment an embodiment for the work of God. Look at verse 5. It says, When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifices 
an offering thou wouldest not. In other words, you'd have no pleasure in that. But a body has thou prepared me. It speaks of that awful night that God walked down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. And then he deposited that baby in a cattle trough in straw among the stench of urine and offal in Bethlehem. God came all the way down. All the way down. This introduces us to the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation. John 1.14 says the, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in flesh. That's 1 Timothy 3.16 for your reference. He came down to take a body that except for sin was exactly like your body and my body. Exactly. And the word prepared there is the word that means to engineer. To engineer. So God built that body in the womb of a probably teenage Jewish girl. And it's the same word that's used here. It's used in 139th Psalm for how God stood over your mother's body and wove the pieces of your body so that you are distinctively and wonderfully made for God's own purpose. For God's own purpose. Now, the writer of Hebrews writes a great deal about animal sacrifices, but what he's showing is a contrast between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, that the Old Covenant with his blood sacrifices never took away sin. Animal blood could never take away sin, only covered, only covered, and that the sacrifice of the divine person, Jesus Christ, was the only one that could settle the problem of sin. Now, step one here is that Jesus pre-existed before his entrance into time and history in human flesh. He pre-existed. In other words, he didn't begin with his conception. He didn't begin with that. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And it's the word for always was, or was continuing to be, was the word. The word always was with God, and the word always was God. So he always was. In this very text, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, don't turn to it, but the Father actually declares the Son is God in his own words. So, Jesus preexisted in all eternity past, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father. Always existed. You know, we have people that look at the Old Testament and they see how severe God was back there. And, and then they look at the New Testament and they say, well, you know, it's, it's got to be a different God. <laughs> we are talking about this the other day. This was a, you know, he was so severe back there. And, and now, you know, he, he's loving and gracious and has to be a different God. No, what we're doing is we're comparing his justice with his mercy instead of comparing his justice with his law. You see, in the beginning, every sin required death. Every last one. You sin, you die. Period. That's it. 
And God saw, had mercy on us and saw that we were just so incredibly, incredibly sinful. And so by the time you get down to the law of Moses, there's only some 35 sins that required death. Okay? I mean, that's an incredible reduction. <laughs> incredible reduction. That's not severity at all. That's mercy and grace. In the Garden of Eden, he started by showing grace. He started. He didn't kill them immediately. That's why they were hiding. They probably thought he was coming to kill them. You know, because he said, the day you eat, you'll die. You'll surely die. Okay? So that was an incredible deduction, reduction, and it was mercy and grace that God showed there. But Jesus preexisted, preexisted before Bethlehem, long before Bethlehem. You know, I'm reminded of the little boy who couldn't wait. His mom had a baby, and he couldn't wait for his baby brother to come home. And just as soon as he could get along with the little baby, he closed the door behind him and said, All right, baby brother, tell me about God before you forget. There's <laughs> one problem with that. That child had no memory of God. He had no preexistence. His existence be began... With his conception, Jesus preexisted long before Bethlehem. Step two, the father preplanned and prepared the body that Jesus would live in during his incarnation. Notice again, he said, a body has thou prepared me in verse five. And the word prepared is the same word that is used, that means to engineer or to fashion I believe the King James Version says. So God prepared that body, planned that body up front. And, and in other words, his nose was nothing that, that God wasn't familiar with and didn't plan. His hands were the, the hands that God planned. His features, the scripture says he had no comeliness that we would desire him because his appeal was not in outward beauty. Not at all. Not at all. And he was a carpenter, so we know he was pretty tough. Pretty tough. You know, you see those pictures of people that have this real soft, feminine-looking Jesus <laughs> with his hands clasped and speaking in monotones like this. No. No. A carpenter in that day had to go out and cut his own wood, had to cut his trees first, and then hew out the boards and... and fashion that lumber. And they didn't have power tools, man. There was no Sears. There was no craftsman rods. There was none of that that we have today that makes our task easier. No, Jesus was extremely physical, extremely physical. I'm firmly convinced he was. I don't know how you could do that if you weren't. Just knocking all the pins out. How about that? Uh, <laughs> so... Mary, step three, presented Jesus bodily to the world through the portal of biological birth. And, and you know what I would wish for you? I would wish for you a, that you would have a merry Christmas. A merry Christmas. That's, that's not spelled M-E-R-Y. It's capital M-A-R-Y. You know how she had Christmas? There was a miraculous entrance of a person into her of a person into her. 
And then there was a stretching and painful enlargement of that person inside of her. Now, I'm describing the Christian life to you now. And then there was an exit which brought on more pain and more stretching as that person exited her. You see, it's the same way when you come to Jesus Christ. There's a miraculous entrance of a person into you, a person that actually enters you. And as you begin to grow in in the faith, Galatians 4.19 says he starts to form and expand inside of you. And you got all the Jesus you were going to get when you got saved. (laughs) Don't misread me. Because there are those that teach that error. Oh, well, you get saved, and then you have a second blessing. Yeah, right. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. Not at all. You get all the Jesus you're going to get when you get saved, but he has to be fully formed in you and get all of you that he can get. That's not the issue. The issue is not that you get more of him. The issue is that does he get more of you? Is he getting more of you? So there's an entrance of that person, of the Holy Spirit into you when you become a Christian. And then there's that enlargement, that enlargement as you get to know him better. And finally, you get to see his ministry as he comes through you and out into the world as you present him to the world. Mary presented him bodily. We are to present him spiritually to the world. So I would dare to miss to... Wish you a capital M-A-R-Y, Merry Christmas. Now, notice an incredible thing as the Christmas story unfolded. Don't turn to it. Luke one thirty four. you know the story. Mary said, hmm, how can these things be? Seeing that I've never known a man, you see. She was the first doubter of the virgin birth. <laughs> it was Mary herself. Now, she got it settled, praise the Lord. And if you doubt it, you need to get it settled just like she did. Okay, but she was the first doubter of the virgin birth. She said, now, how how can these things be since I know no man? And the angel said, you need not worry about that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the, the power of the Most High will come upon you. And that holy thing that will be born of you will be called the Son of God. Excuse me, God had never been a thing. (laughs) God had never been a thing. God had always only been pure spirit, whether it was Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. He had never been a thing. And here's an angel talking outside of his natural realm, and he calls God a thing, a thing, that holy thing. (laughs) In all eternity past, God had never been a thing. But now, in a moment of time, God, who had only been spirit, pure spirit, came and became a thing, became substance. He passed into substance and became a thing. And that thing was so small that it had to multiply, are you listening, 120 billion times. 120 billion times God multiplied in the womb of a probably teenage virgin girl. God's so small that at that point that if he would have allowed it, you could hold him in the crease of your hand and you could have crushed God. Think about that. 
That is incredible power. Incredible power. 120 billion times God had to multiply when he came into his own creation. So the God who invented the world has now invaded the world in human form. In human form. So he, the God who created the world, crashed it as a human being. And for what purpose? Why did he have to have a body? He had to become human to have a mortal nature, a nature that was capable of dying. That's the only way he could remove the disqualification between us and God. A nature capable of dying. So as a human being, he could die. So Jesus saw his coming into the world as an embodiment for the work of God. Number two, he saw his coming as a commitment to the will of God. A commitment to the will of God. You know, one sentence in the text is important enough that the Holy Spirit repeats it both in verse 7 and verse 9. And anytime the Holy Spirit repeats himself, he really intends for us to catch up with what he's saying. We need to be aware of that. That should set us on alert. And it's hidden in this simple sentence. Then said I, verse 9 says, then said he, speaking of Jesus, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And this sentence alone, to truly study it the way that it needs be, we would be here for a couple of days. We won't. But we <laughs> and the first word there says, lo. King James says, lo. Some translations, such as NAS says, behold. They mean the same thing. It's an alert word. It's a surprise word that really gives you a poke to say, get your head up and open your eyes because something special here. Something special and solemn and surprising, even shocking, is revealed here. That's the word lo or behold. Incredible. Then give careful attention to the word I. Don't assume anything about your Bible. You see, the Holy Spirit never abused, misused, misplaced, or displaced words. So every word is important. God said man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word. So it behooves us to ponder every word that comes from the mouth of God, because it's important to us. The word I, E-G-O in Greek, ego, is a universally and biblically recognized word for personality. God the Father used that word about himself. God the Son used that word about himself. God the Holy Spirit used that word about himself. It is the word for self-conscious personality. Personality. You see, some people think it's wrong to have an ego. If your ego disappears, you, you disappear. You don't exist. Okay? The problem with ego is what you do with it wrongly. When you turn the drives of your ego on yourself and become egocentric, that's what sin is. You see? But there's nothing in the world wrong with having an ego. If you have, you, your ego disappears, so do you. Then note the third word, come. Lo, I come, Jesus said. Now, has it ever occurred to you that 
Jesus is the only person that ever walked this earth about whom it may technically be said that he came. (laughs) You didn't come. You were brought by someone else's intent or agency. But he came intentionally. He's the only one who ever did. And he said, I come to do thy will. To do thy will. Now notice, he did not come merely to consider God's will or to analyze it or to approve it or discuss it or endure it. He came to do God's will. To do God's will. Now that raises a question. Are you thinking carefully? How many wills are involved? How many wills were involved? Be careful. You got two people there (laughs) inside the Godhood. He said, I came to do thy will. So there were two wills involved there. And here you had the will of the Father and the willingness of the Son. Over and over and over, he said all through the Gospels, I do nothing of myself. What I hear my father say, I repeat. What I see him do, I do. I do nothing of myself. He came to do the will of God. Isn't it interesting how people are constantly trying to find the will of God? It's spread all through the scriptures. All through the scriptures. You can find the will of God, you know. And when we see that, we want to pray about it. You know, that's a subtle way to disobey. That's all that is. When God has given you a command, you don't need to pray about it. Why are you praying? (laughs) What's that for? Because you want to consider it? (laughs) Whether or not you want to do it? No, move out. God has already said what he wants you to do. You don't have to pray about that. That is a subtle way to disobey. It really is. Remember that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but Dying. So there are two wills involved there. He never did anything contrary to the will of God, and he never exercised his own will independently of the will of God. So the will of the Father was always matched by the willingness of the Son. And then again, notice what Jesus called his Father. He called him God. God. So you see, for 33 years, Jesus was a worshiping, dependent human being just like you and I. He laid aside his independent use of his divine rights and privileges, according to Philippians chapter 2, and he functioned as a human being to show us how to do it. So Jesus regarded his coming as an embodiment for the work of God and as a commitment to the will of God. Third, he saw his coming as a fulfillment of the word of God. A fulfillment of the word of God. Look again at verse 7. He says, it is written. It is written. Very, very important statement. Recorded many, many times in Scripture. Many, many times in Scripture. In Greek, it's what's known as a perfect tense verb. Means it covers past, present, and future, meaning that it's absolutely perfect and it cannot be changed. Cannot be changed. 
It cannot be repealed. It need not be repeated. It cannot be undone. It need not be redone. It's perfect. He said, it stands written. That's literally what that says in the original language. It stands written. This means that everything about his coming, everything about his incarnation was recorded in the word of God long before it occurred. It also means that it was inviolable. It could not be changed. God's word never changes. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Now, again, verses 7 and 9 appears a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And this was typical in Jesus' life. The Old Testament foretold him as a person. It foretold the pattern, and it foretold the purpose of his life. All of that was pre-written before Jesus ever came to Bethlehem. You notice many times he'd say, Have you not read? (laughs) Have you not read? It's all there. It's all there. He fulfilled all that was written about the days of his flesh upon earth. And all of that was in Scripture. He said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So his very conception was in the volume of the book. His character was written in the volume of the book. His conduct was written in the volume of the book. His capability to save was written in the volume of the book. His conquest of sin was written in the volume of the book. His cross was pre-written in the volume of the book. His coronation at the end of the age was written in the volume of the book. He's the only person who ever lived whose total history was written in advance. Written in advance. Total history. Now, don't take my word for that. I want to give you one example of that. Turn to Numbers chapter 21. This is one that I'd like you to put your eyes on. Numbers chapter 21. Verse 8. Verses 8 and 9. Numbers chapter 21. Bible leaves. I love to hear Bible leaves turning. has a distinct sound. Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. And let me give you the background before I read that. You see, the children of Israel were murmuring against God as they constantly did. No matter what God did for them, you know, fed them manna, fed them quail, parted the Red Sea, drowned the enemy, bought water out of a rock, you know, and they still murmured. And this is one of those times they were murmuring against God. And, and as God was wont to do, he would grow tired of that after a while. Uh, and, and, and he would, would send them a little something to remind them that he still is. <laughs> and this is one of those situations. So then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he'll live. You see, this is one of those times that God, the, the Israelites were murmuring against him. He sent a plague of fiery snakes to bite them, and they were dropping like flies. Dropping like flies, you know. 
got penitent real quick. And, and, and so they said, you know, Moses, would you talk to the Lord? You know, we're, di- we're dying here. Could you talk to him and get him to stop? <laughs> and this is the instruction that God gave Moses. He told him to make, fashion a snake out of bronze. Now, in typology, in the Old Testament, bronze represents sin. So he told him to fashion a snake in the likeness of the one that was causing the problem and make it out of bronze. And then he said, put it on a pole, on a pole. You need to be wide awake and alert whenever you see in the Old Testament God throwing wood into a situation because he's pointing you to something. He's sending a message. He said, put it on a pole and hold it up, and when a person has been bitten by that venom that would kill him, sin, when he looks at it, he'll live. He'll live. Now turn to John chapter 3, verse 14. Say, so what in the world does that mean? This is an actual occurrence that actually happened. Okay? This is not a fairy tale. Actually happened to the Israelites, but God was painting a portrait. He was painting a picture of his son. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus interprets that. Numbers 21 occurrence for us. John 3.14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that Numbers 21 occurrence was a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. A perfect picture of Christ's crucifixion. That many years prior to the actual event, God was painting a portrait. The whole Bible might be viewed as God's family portrait album. Because from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's a him, H-I-M, book. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Painting a portrait. You know, a portrait normally has three evident features. Has a background, the visible person or the face, and then the garments that that person wears. In the Bible, the background of the portrait is the Old Testament. Usually the background of a portrait is full of shades and shadows. Back to our text in Hebrews 10, shades and shadows. What does it say in Hebrews 10, 1? For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form or image of the things. So the background is full of shades and shadows in order to call attention to the visible person, to call attention to the central figure, the face in the portrait, to publicize that person. Now, the visible person or the face in this biblical portrait is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the reason that 
God's book went to press anyway. <laughs> and then the portrait of that person, the visible face, is essentially seen in the four Gospels. That's where you see the face of Jesus. Then the garments of glory that he wears are revealed in the book of Acts through Revelation. So this is a hymn, H-I-M book. You see, Jesus is the inexhaustible subject of the great portrait of the Bible. He's the subject. So he saw his coming as a fulfillment of the word of God. Fulfillment of the word of God. Fourth, he saw his coming as a settlement of the only way to God. A settlement of the only way to God. Now the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10 are devoted to this theme. The first 18 verses. The death of Jesus is the one all-sufficient settlement for sin, and Jesus himself is the new and living way spoken of in verse 20. Again, the 10th chapter of Hebrews presents a fantastic contrast between the Old Testament preparation and the New Testament presentation of Jesus Christ. For example, again, back to verse 1, tells us that the law, the Old Testament system, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices, which were offered year by year continually, make the comers there too perfect. In other words, those blood sacrifices didn't do it. Didn't do it at all. Now, the word shadow could also be translated silhouette or an outline. And uh, have you ever heard of the, the shadow of a meal feeding a hungry man? <laughs> Or the shadow of a key opening the door. You know, I, I get just weary of some of our spiritual cliches. Because most of them don't match this book. You hear people talking about the shadow of the cross. Friend, the shadow of the cross never saved anybody. Never saved anybody. The work that Jesus did on that cross is what saves. I don't know why we don't go back to the book for our vocabulary. It's a novel idea. <laughs> you know, you can learn a lot of things by looking at a shadow. You can learn a lot of things. If you saw the shadow of a, of a lion, that would get your attention, especially if there's no cage. <laughs> okay, that gets your attention pretty quick. So you can learn a lot by looking at a shadow, a lot. Now, there's a contrast here between shadow the Old Testament presentation of Jesus, and the substance, which is Jesus Christ himself. A contrast. So I have a question that that raises. Which comes first, substance or shadow? Talk to me. Which has to come first? Substance has to come first. You cannot have a shadow without substance. So Jesus pre-existed before anything, 
And if the Old Testament is the shadow and he's the substance, guess what? Your Bible is written backward. <laughs> now swim around in that one for a minute. <laughs> Isn't that right? The substance was already here before the Old Testament. Had to be. Had to be here. Because you can't have a shadow without substance. The substance already existed before the shadow appeared. So this is a strange substance that casts a shadow in all directions. <laughs> all directions. Jesus pre-existed before the shadow ever appeared, before it was ever written. So your Bible's written backwards. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> now, also in the Old Testament economy was marked by a repetition of sacrifices, but no remission of sins. <coughs> repetition of sacrifices, but no remission of sins. Look again at verse 1. It says, those sacrifices were offered year by year continually, but without the desired result. Without the desired result, there was no forgiveness. Verse 11 adds, every priest, talking about in the Old Testament system, every priest stands, King James says standeth, I like that, stands, you see the priest is pictured as not having a place to sit down. You know why? His work was never finished. Says he offered continually and year to year. So his work was never finished. He, it was never a finished work. So there was no place for him to sit in there. Because his work was always continual. So <clears throat> says he was daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. And heavy emphasis is placed on the word same. The same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So the repetition of the sacrifices only magnified the problem. Only magnified the problem. If you have a bill, if you have an indebtedness, and you're paying on that indebtedness, every time you pay, it just reminds you that, that thing's not paid off yet. Huh? Well, maybe I don't have bills. I don't know. But... <laughs> but there was a rep and the repetition of the sacrifices only magnified the problem. Similarly, the Old Testament economy was marked by a constant remembrance of sin, but no removal. A remembrance, but no removal. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. Now, the word remembrance is the very word Jesus used in his implementation of the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated. Remembrance. I'm telling you, there are pictures all over this, and we need to be better students of the Bible to catch up with this. He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, of what I've done on your behalf. So I have a searching question for you. Which do you remember most, your sin or your Savior? Which do you remember most, your sins 
or your Savior. If you remember your sins most, you're either lost or carnal. If you remember your sins most, I'm not going to let you escape it or it you. If you remember your sins more than you do your Savior, you're lost or carnal, one of the two. Now, you're only to remember your sins long enough to get rid of them and agree with God about them. 1 John 1, 9. Take them before him and agree, and he says in that instant, he cleans you up afresh. No three-week apology necessary. No trying to make it up to God because you can't. If you could, Jesus would not have had to die in the first place. Yeah, I was preaching in a Bible conference in Memphis with a young man. I may have told you this story before, but I'll tell you again. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we, we hung out together in another life. <laughs> okay. No, you don't get to give testimony. Uh, <laughs> my wife's looking at me like, oh, Lord, he's going to tell this. <laughs> but uh, he had just finished preaching, and, and, uh, and a young woman walked up to him and and uh, stuck out her hand to shake his hand and said, uh, you don't remember me, do you? He said, no, <laughs> I don't. You have the advantage. She said, I remember you. She said, I remember what a, a sinner, what an honorary, awful sinner you were before God saved you. I said, boy, I hope we're not going to go into detail on this. And his answer was classic. He stuck out his hand, shook her hand, and said, Ma'am, congratulations. You can do something God can't do because he said the day he saved me, he cast my sins in the sea of forgetfulness, and he would remember them no more. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. His grace. That shut that conversation down. That was good. I had to remember that one. <laughs> you see, our enemy would have us constantly obsessed with our sins. He wants to remind you of your failure. We talked about that last week. You know, the past is past. You can't rescue it, can't undo it. Hand it over to Jesus, agree with him about it, and move on. Move on. Get about the business that he wants you to be about. You see, Satan can neutralize you and have you stalemated and, and totally ineffective if he can keep you dwelling on some wrong that you've done. God has a bar of soap inside his household. 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. In other words, agree with God. That's all confession means, to agree with him. If we will agree with God about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The past is past. Thank God. <laughs> so what do you think of most, your sins or Jesus? Now, Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 repeatedly state that Jesus did his work once, one time. And it's a contrast. Remember, we said it's a contrast between the Old Testament and the New. A contrast. And over and over, it says, it talks about him doing something once. Now, he tells us in verse 4 that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. 
But then Jesus came. And in verse 12, it says, But he, having offered one, major emphasis, one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the priest never sat down because his work wasn't finished. This tells us that Jesus' work was finished. And the word once, there's two possible Greek words for the word once. One means once upon a time. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here means once, forever, and finally. That's it. One time he offered. You know, in John 3, 3, he didn't say to Nicodemus, you, have, you must be born again and again and again and again and again. No. That's what he would have had to say if you could lose it. One time. One time. For once and forever. It's finished. Isn't that what he said on the cross in John 19, 3? It's finished. Also a perfect tense verb. Finished. Done. Complete. Complete. And Colossians 1 tells us you are complete in him. You don't need a second blessing. (laughs) You're complete in him. You got all the Jesus you were going to get the day you got saved. Now he needs to get more of you. Look down at verse 12 through 14. Said, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And listen to this. For by one, there we are again, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, can you go beyond perfection? No. Can you go beyond forever? No. You cannot. So we have a salvation that's accomplished by one man, one time, through one act, and it's permanent for all time. For all times. And then he tells us some really cool things. We're going to close this down, but look back at Hebrews chapter 7. Take a couple pages to the left. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, our salvation is perfect. One time, it's perfect. But look at chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25. It says, but he, he's talking about the contrast between Jesus as our high priest and the Old Testament priest. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever or he lives forever, you see the Old, Old Testament priest died off, so their ministry didn't continue forever. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever. Don't miss that. Forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He always lives to make an Right now, if you're his, he's there explaining Douglas to the father. Father, I know, but he's covered. Covered. Now turn to Hebrews 9, 24. Hebrews 9. Again, it's contrasting the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with the New. And the high priestly work of Jesus Christ in this age. This is going on as we speak, as was Hebrews 7.24. Going on as we speak, Hebrews 9.24. You know, the old te- old, in the Old Testament, the high priest once a year would enter the Holy of Holies. And he wore a long robe with bells around the bottom of it, and they tied a rope around his waist. And if they didn't hear the bells, okay, they knew this was not a good day. Because <laughs> God had killed him. And they couldn't, you couldn't go in there and get him because God would kill you too. So they tied that rope around his waist and they hauled him out. See? Man, be a lot less folks wanting to preach if that happened today, wouldn't it? <laughs> Be a very small number in that vocation. <laughs> Verse 24, chapter 9 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true, of the true one, but into heaven itself. And this next part just knocks me out. Now to appear in the presence of God for what? For us. For us, right today, appearing in the presence of God for us. I want to know how you could lose it. Wow, that's a lock. Praise the Lord for that. So this is the way Jesus saw his coming into the world, his coming into the world. At Bethlehem, you see, this takes us again back beyond the little baby, the cute little baby that's easy enough to tickle under the chin and give mental assent to and give lip service to. This takes us back beyond that. This is the purpose of his coming. This is why he came. Now, what should be our response? Since he saw his coming as an embodiment for the work of God, a commitment to the will of God, a fulfillment of the word of God, and a settlement of the only way to God, what should be our response? Our response to that. He desires that our role be similar to that of Mary. She presented him bodily into the world, and we are to present him spiritually to the world. You are all the Jesus Christ that some people will ever see. Do you know that? You are his body. Individually and collectively, we are his body. And we are expected to represent him in the world. Anything you do humanly, you use your body. If you walk, you use your body. If you talk, you use your body. If you hear, you use your body. If you see, you use your body. If you smell, in either sense of the word, you use your body. Anything... (laughs) 
<laughs> anything we do, we use our bodies. Jesus Christ operates exactly the same way. And we are his body. Without him, we cannot. And without us, he will not. He has chosen it that it would be this way. So we are to represent him. Um, anybody in here familiar with the comic strip, Marvin? You say, man, he, he must read the funny papers a lot, the comics a lot. And, you know, that's the only part of the paper I read. <laughs> Tells you something about my mentality, doesn't it? <laughs> because the rest of that thing is there to tell you how horrible things are. I don't need anybody to tell me that. I know how horrible things are. I wouldn't be doing what I'd do if I didn't know how horrible things are. <laughs> I don't need the comical appeal to tell me that. <clears throat> but Marvin... Marvin's a little fat kid and uh, has an incredible mentality. I mean, incredible. Just He talks like a Ph.D., <laughs> you know, just cool kid, way, way cool kid. And in this particular edition of the comic strip, his mother is reading to him the story of Jesus. And, you know, that's in the first frame. And another frame you see Marvin sitting there, and you know it's, a, it's a, the comics license to put a thought bubble over their head so you can see what they're saying, what they're thinking. And he says, hmm, let me get this straight. Jesus had the birthday, and we get the presents. So, man, is this a religion or what? <laughs> Are you listening? Jesus had the birthday, and we get the P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E, the presents. And what you really think about Christmas will be seen in whether you place more emphasis on the P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S -E -E under the tree or the P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E -E hanging on the capital T-R-E-E. -E. Jesus Christ. As Christians, the last thing we do should be to get caught up in the commercialism of Christmas because that's not what it's about for us. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with giving gifts, but don't you dare, don't you dare let that compete with the P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. You know, in Cameroon, they asked me, they said, Pastor Jimmy. They call me Pastor, Pastor Jimmy. <laughs> in America, do they celebrate the great white father in the red suit? Huh? <laughs> you know, that's embarrassing to have somebody in the deep part of the third world who loves Jesus Christ, and have him have to ask a question like that about us. He said, do Christians celebrate the great white father in the big red suit? And the, yes, the deer. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I'm amazed at how many Christians 
tell their children that there's a Santa Claus. So, oh, he's stepping on sacred ground now. <laughs> I'm amazed at that. That's a lie, and you know it. I told my kids, you looking at Santa Claus. You looking at him. He ain't getting my juice, baby. <laughs> you, looking at, you looking at him. If it comes, I put it there. <laughs> ah, let's stop. <laughs> Lesson for our lives. You, Christian, are the body Jesus uses today to accomplish the work of God. You, Christian, are the body Jesus uses today to accomplish the work of God. As I said before, without him, we cannot, but without you, he will not. He fully expects to walk around on your feet, to kneel on your knees, to help with your hands. The money in your pocket or in your bank is not yours. It's his. It's his. If you remember that, he, he'll always see that there's something there. You may not know how it's going to get there, but he'll always see that there's something there. If you commit yourself to doing his work, to doing his work, he will supply what you need to do that work. I wish for time for testimony to tell you about that. Number two, it's a question form. Oh. He always does that. How committed are you to the will of God? To the will of God. Lord, show me your will that I might consider it. We don't say that openly. We'd never say that. Mm -mm. (laughs) Number three. Are you actively engaged in performing the work of God? Since it is his intent to work through his body, through you, are you actively engaged in that work? And aren't you glad you don't get to answer these out loud? (laughs) Number four, is your Christmas focus the P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S or the P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Is your focus on the T-R-E-E or the capital T-R-E-E? And finally, if you don't know Jesus as Savior today, accept his presence into your life. He stands at the door and knocks. You see, in Christianity, God seeks man. Man doesn't seek God. And he's always seeking. As Brother Roger said earlier, obviously, all of his elect have not come to him yet because we're still here. We're still here. So there's still some elect. And I'll be glad when they all come in so we can go home.